You're listening to You're listening to the Collabcast, a podcast about pop culture and the creative life from an Asian American perspective. Lost in the silence, that's where I will stay. I came here to meet you, but you don't feel the same. I failed you before, I know you won't understand. No. Hey everyone, you're listening to episode 164 of the Collabcast for Friday, May the 11th, 2018. My name is Marvin Yue and I'll be your host for this episode, continuing our coverage of the 2018 Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival put on by our friends at Visual Communications. The festival may have wrapped up last night, but we still have a couple more interviews to share with you. These are interviews that I conducted last week at the Festival Press Day. Uh, thanks again to both Visual Communications and the Potluck Podcast Collective uh, for getting us set up there. A little bit about VC. They are an amazing organization here in Los Angeles. Uh, not only do they put it on the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival, showcasing brilliant and amazing filmmakers from the Asian and Asian American communities. Um, they also have a bunch of great projects where they work with community members and um, young inspiring filmmakers to create new and personal works. Um, you can learn more about VC by going to the website at vconline.org. And as always, you can learn more about the Potluck Podcast Collective by going to the website podcastpotluck.com. On this episode, we talk to filmmakers from four different films, all highlighting stories from narratives and perspectives that haven't been covered as much in the uh, mainstream, quote-unquote mainstream, Asian-American conversation. Uh, first up, we talk to the filmmakers behind Kuliana, a story set in Hawaii during the 1970s during the Hawaiian Renaissance about rediscovering the island's culture and fighting the exploitation of land. You're listening to the Collabcast. We are here at the 2018 Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival. I am here with the creative team behind Kuliana. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves and your roles in the film? Aloha. I'm Brian Cohn, writer-director of Kuliana. Well, you're also the writer, producer, and all that other stuff, right, Brian? Uh, I'll do whatever. I watch Cars. (laughs) Branscombe Richmond, executive producer, actor. Adi Alad, film editor. And Moranai Kanekoa, actor. Awesome. So, um, who wants to uh, tell us about the film? Um, (laughs) Kuliana takes place on Maui in 1971. A disabled Vietnam vet rediscovers the Hawaiian warrior within to protect his family, defend their land, and clear his father's name. It's an intense mystery drama that explores uh, contemporary issues such as land rights. and Ultimately, it's about family, this motion picture. What inspired you to write this, this movie? You know, I grew up on Maui, and the uh, events um, as a child, the bombing of, of one of our islands, Koho'olawe, by the U.S. Navy, which went on from World War II into the early 90s, um, was a, something that was horrific to witness on a daily basis, and nobody seemed to care in the 70s. So mm-hmm. it was just something that burned a hole in my heart as a child, and as I, as I grew forward as an artist, I'd always sought to uh, say something about that, and it just took a little time to figure out not only what to say, but how we were going to say it. And uh, here we are, Kuliana. Great. How did you all get brought on onto the project? Well, for me, I, he found me. Um, I played Nohea, the lead character in the film, and 
I was doing a play called The Legend of Ko'olau and um, Brian saw it and he kind of he, he, he came up to me and asked me to read this the script and I thought it was great and so I said sure let's do it <laughs> and how did, you, how did you get brought on? I know you were looking right at me and I knew you were going to come with that question <laughs> um, so I'm a native Hawaiian Just a yet. another native Hawaiian <laughs> A person who is of like heart and blood and, and uh, na'au, Hawaiian. Um, it's very rare you're going to do a Hawaiian story, right? Because this is about numbers. This is about numbers. And uh, so the brave ones say, I'm going to take the next 10 years of my life and I'm going to write a story that means something dear to me and is, is a true story. So then you get a guy like Brian who says, uh, I got 10 years of my life. I'm going to write this down. So that was the first step of the journey. And this is a journey uh, in the cinema industry. It is a journey. It takes a lot of people. It's a team play. And uh, hopefully in the end, we end up at wonderful places at, like this, at the Asian Pacific Film Market. Yeah. You know, I mean, film festival. And um, of all the films that are here, we're probably one of the few Polynesian films that is here. And it's, uh, uh, I'm so proud to be here. Yeah. I've been doing this a long time. This is my 47th year, and this is one of the highlights of my career, is being in this wonderful, small, humble, little movie against all odds, Kuleana. That's awesome. Um, I've been covering this film festival for the last couple of years as well, and a big talking point in, in uh, entertainment this past like two, three years has been diversity, inclusion, representation. Yeah. yeah, and to see your stories on screen in a fictional way is, is so important to, to people growing up and you know being able to not only see what you can do, but also seeing people acting, producing, directing, and realizing that that's something that you can do as well. You, you know what? Can I brag about this guy for one second, Brian? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to brag about this guy. Here, so. <laughs> right. um, I'll brag about him. Uh, and, yeah, well, <laughs> here, here's what I wanted to say. I wanted to say that we're the 50th state of the <laughs> Union, okay? And we're on a little island, and there's stories going on that may be righteous, righteous things to do and unrighteous things to do. So you need to take a big step on the bravery pill, <laughs> and he's going to write a story that's kind of an unpopular deal, mm. right? To the masses of people who make decisions on what happens in the state of Hawaii. <laughs> the man. Yeah. Uh, for the lack of a better term. <laughs> so he writes it, and then he says, I'm going to put a native Hawaiian in the lead. Mr. Kanikoa right here. Yeah. Well, everyone else is going to say, dude, you're going to hang the picture on this guy right here? Right? <laughs> I mean, and he's he a did. Very good looking guy, though. Absolutely. <laughs> he's the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the Hawaiian people. <laughs> Keep on saying. Okay. <laughs> And this is the Otto Preminger of uh, Maui. So, so I just want to brag about that because yeah. um, this is the first time in, in 10 years that there's been a, a Hawaiian-themed movie that yeah. even played in the state of Hawaii uh -huh. alone be relevant. Yeah. So was it really important for you to make sure that the casting and, and everything was, was as authentic as, as it could be? Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm always as concerned about what we do as how we do it. Mm. And in a movie like Kuleana, which takes place in Maui in 1971, there's absolutely no way to bring it to life without, um, without a measure of authenticity. So it was a process, as I wrote over the years. Uh, I've been working on this one for quite some time, as Bransko mentioned. Uh, really 13 years um, in, in counting uh, on this one. So I was able to cast over time. So I was able to find my actors 
uh, in the process of rewrites and then craft roles. So yeah, the commitment to authenticity um, ethnically was is it's a no-brainer to me, and and I and I don't think that, you know I, I'm I live outside of the system as an independent filmmaker, and I'm so fr- frankly I'm uncorruptible. There's nothing you can take from me. Wow. Um, there's really nothing you can take from me or threaten me. So I so I have that autonomy to make these decisions because only I am going to have to live with them. Yeah. You know um, I don't have a I don't have children, so I can take these risks. If if I'm not eating, um, it's just me. So so this is this is just one of those reasons why you don't see a lot of movies of this nature is because it is it is risky it is counterintuitive we're working in a genre Hawaiian that doesn't exist making movies about a people of whom there are few mm-hmm. so this is counterintuitive as Branscombe pointed out uh, to the way the industry approaches these things as a numbers game mm-hmm. but, but I believe it's super important not only for the Hawaiian culture but all cultures and being here at the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival um, at risk of preaching to the choir I believe that it is absolutely important that we invest in one another and that we continue to, to hold strong. We cannot wait for the world to change. We need to change the world one movie at a time. Yeah. And I'm glad you guys are here because, you know, for, for a long time, like, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders have kind of been pushed together as, you know, not by choice, but by, like, right. just, just because we're told we were supposed to be together. <laughs> and it's, it's great to see... Because um, we both eat more. rice. Yeah. <laughs> you don't eat rice, oh. don't think twice. <laughs> I read a statistic that people in Hawaii, we eat a, an average of 100 pounds of rice a year. Wow. We're the, yeah, yeah, we're the biggest consumers of, you know, of, of, Obviously of rice. Obviously, he's eating enough rice. No, no. I stopped when I moved to the mainland. I, yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I stopped eating is rice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. remember, remember in the old days when when if you have kids, and I've got tons of kids, um, <laughs> when you said, uh, "What do you want to do when you grow up?" Yeah. Now that question is really, when you grow up, how are you going to make things better? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, because the millennials are definitely not here to please their parents, and I know because I've got <laughs> millennial kids, but they're really out to search what their what their dream is. You know what I mean? Yeah. And. Uh, I think you might be a millennial. Are you a millennial? I might consider no. Because I'm, I'm like the the I'm at the vanguard. I'm like 84 is like when it starts. Oh really? Nah, so I'm are you for that? Oh, you're yeah. an old guy now. Yes, huh? I'm an okay. old guy. Gen X. So, so he's a rebel. He's a rebel. I think, I think when, when Brian was being uh, raised with a unbelievable conscience, to be honest with you, mm. which as I get to know him more and more and more, it's like, dude, this guy really <laughs> is living in something in here. You know what I mean? Which I don't live here at all, which is a problem. But but he said, when I said that thing to you, is what can you instead of what do you want to do when you grow up? What can you do to make the world better? And that's what he does. That's what Brian Cohn does. That's awesome. Um, so how's it? Um, how was it being the lead of this film? Um, it was actually my first film being the the lead mm-hmm. lead lead. Um, it was it was a little tough and easy at the same time because the character is pretty close to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was born and raised in Maui, uh, same as this character, um, it, it dealt with similar issues as this character. What was hard for me, acting-wise, was continuity and seeing the journey, because I did more theater, um, mm-hmm. and so you can go from beginning to end, <laughs> all in one shot, right. whereas this is all in pieces, all right. over the place. So for me, that was the hardest part, is trying to uh, keep everything keep track of where I am in this journey. 
mm. and hopefully it, it, it you can I pulled it off in the yeah. great job great. <laughs> <laughs> well congratulations um, was this one of the first times you've played like a character of your own background uh, in a film yes oh um, I also did the play that I mentioned before, mm. but yeah, and there really aren't that many opportunities to play a Native Hawaiian character in film. So hopefully there'll be more. Yeah, hopefully there'll be more. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is also a period piece. Yeah. Uh, what made you want to? Uh, well, I, I, it, it's um, historic, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's fiction, but it's set in 1971. Mm-hmm. Um, the, when, from the time I first started writing it, I kind of had it in the 70s. And it, the timeline moved around, and it, it landed where it did. It's a, it's a really important period of time in Hawaiian history. By the end of the 60s, the culture, the Hawaiian culture, was on the precipice of its extinction. Uh, fewer than 1,000 people spoke uh, the language, Olelo Hawaii. Mm. And in the mid-70s, we've, we, we recognize, we reflect back, and we refer to this as the Hawaiian Renaissance. There was a resurgence of culture, tradition, and, 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 a, and a reinvestment in, in culture and identity. Um, so 1971 is that period in time, uh, just this side of people waking up. So this movie really does explore. And more nice character, Nohea, uh, he's, he's really a, a Hawaiian who's, who's ready to leave Hawaii and leave it all behind. He's, mm-hmm. His identity has been taken from him. Mm-hmm. So part of the journey for this particular character is not only finding um, his identity, his Hawaiian identity, but re- uh, committing to remaining in Hawaii, and he would have been, for sure, one of the people uh, in the in the Hawaiian Renaissance who would have been very active yeah. in working to make a difference and fight some of the some of the issues that, frank, unfortunately, we still we still kind of battle with today. Yeah, and it's it's a history that not a lot of us learn about. You know, those of us who do know a little bit about the you know, Hawaiian history and how it was, how how it became the fiftieth state, um, we learn from like just like taken with a bayonet. Yeah. What you're <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, growing up, um, for me, I was uh, I was in school in Hawaii in the '70s, and our textbooks we only had to take Hawaiian history in seventh grade. That mm-hmm. was it. So that was the that was the extent of of your education about Hawaiian history. And it was a textbook from the early '60s that we were working from, and it was completely whitewashed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we didn't we didn't understand at all the overthrow of the monarchy and, and words like annexation. Everything was so whitewashed. It was it was just really brushed over. Yeah. Um, you know, we we learned about the horrific nature of battles and King Kamehameha and everything. But everything that had to do everything from the late 1800s forward was completely uh, washed. And we were. You know, we were sort of taught to believe that that was okay. And, you know, Hawaiian language was outlawed in the schools for, for the better part of the, you know, the 1900s. And um, so it was taken. And then what, what was worse was Hawaiian people began, became their own oppressors over time. It began with them essentially being colonized. Um, but then once they themselves stopped speaking their language and... You know, people would speak Hawaiian language in the home, but not teach their children mm-hmm. because they felt it was shame. And if because of a child was was speaking the Hawaiian language in in the schools, it, it, you know, they would get in a lot of trouble. So, so we're slo- slowly reversing course. I started off by pointing out that in the late '60s, by the late '60s, only a thousand people spoke the Hawaiian language, Olelo Hawaii. Wow. And today, over twenty thousand people are speaking the language, and it's really on the rise. Um, it's really on the return. Yeah. And the language, the Hawaiian, in most cultures, and certainly Hawaiian culture, traditions are embedded within the language. So for this culture to truly survive, it, it's going to, to do so with, through the resurgence of Olelo Hawaii. Yeah. You know, to kill a culture, you steal their land and you steal their language. And then mm. 
they slowly die away. It's called colonization. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk to your editor because we haven't really talked to him this entire time. But how is it um, editing? Because I'm, you know, I'm the movie takes place in Hawaii and it's a beautiful place to shoot. Um, how was it to? How was it bringing the story together? Um, pretty amazing. I mean, um, let me just go back a step and. I met Brian when I moved to Maui after a 20-year career here that I gave up. <laughs> and I meet Brian, and I, he goes, will you cut my next movie? I'm like, okay, I guess I'm still an editor, you know. <laughs> just moving to Hawaii doesn't mean I give up what I like to do the most. Right. Storytelling, and not just I moved to Hawaii because I care about the culture so much, I got to actually be part of telling uh, the story of, the, of Hawaii, which is kind of a, a gift and an honor to do. Yeah. Um, putting the movie together was a challenge, <laughs> you know. It was shot in 15 days. Wow. Um, when you see the film, you will not believe that it was shot in 50 days. It looks like we had a 60-day shoot. Um, <laughs> and I thought, oh, I'm not going to get a lot of footage. I won't have a lot of choices. But guess what? I got choices of a 60-day shoot. <laughs> so it did take six months to cut the picture and another six months to cut the sound. Um, I, I'll, I'll elaborate on one scene that Brian likes to talk about, the bedroom scene, five characters. Two of them are kids, props coming in and out. It's hot on the set, you know. Um, and uh, when I saw the dailies, I looked at them and I... Looked at Brian, I'm like, hey, Brian, so the bedroom scene. He goes, yeah, about that. Good luck, bye. <laughs> uh, you know, Brian allowed me to actually be a voice, you know, and I believe just like, you know, the music is a character in the movie, Maui is a character in the movie, the land, the water, the ocean. Uh, I believe that every crew member is a character in the film. The editor is, so I mm -hmm. approach it as being a character in the film, and yeah. he allowed me to be a character. That's you know? awesome. Um, I'm glad. I'm, I'm, it's it's a testament to um, your producers and your team to like be able to pull off um, this on an indie like scale, but to, to be able to give you so much. That's um, congratulations on that. Props all around. Um, so, what's next for this film? What's after after LA? Um, we're currently uh, screening in Hawaii. We're in theaters going into our sixth week Great. today, starting today on theaters across the islands. So how's that, that been? How's that been going? Oh, really, really well. Yay. Yeah, we're the first. <laughs> we're the first um, Hawaii motion picture to hit the screens in Hawaii in almost ten years. So people said we couldn't get there. We did. People said then that we wouldn't stay um, more than a week. We have. So we're going into six. So. Yeah. So that's a that's a nice um, nice thing for everybody. It's nice that the audience is getting behind it, and I'd like to think that other Hawaii filmmakers now have our audience to look forward to and to point towards and to yeah. expect to. You know, financing is tied towards uh, with demonstrating that you have an audience. So the success of Kuliana is not our our success. It's it's all of our successes. Everybody who has a, any interest in telling story in the Hawaiian Islands. Yeah. Um, after this, right now we have a lot of event screenings across the country. There's probably 50 of them set up all over. And we are uh, slowly starting to wrap our heads around how to open in theater chains on the mainland yeah. in September. Well, we so. look forward to um, helping support that as well. It's, Thank you. I can't tell you how excited I am to see Native Hawaiian stories on the big screen. You know, Hawaii, Hawaii is, uh, is um, referred to as a melting pot and. Um, you know, there's people from all over the world in Hawaii, and we're all one people at the end of the day. So, so Hawaii's Hawaii's a great place for storytelling of this nature to begin. Yeah. Um, I, I believe that this, frankly, this I'd like to personally experience stories told this way, not where a cast is you know built out based on some quota. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that that's real. I don't think that's authentic. Who's the character? What's the story about? And 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 if it's a story that takes place on this planet in this day and age, it's going to inherently include a lot of uh, diversity. Yeah. Well, I want to congratulate you all on on this um, film. 
here. Um, I've been talking to the cast and crew of Kuliana, which is playing here at the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival, um, and watch out for their theatrical release in September. Correct. And if you want more information on the motion picture, visit hawaiicinema.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Mahalo. Mahalo. Aloha. And again, that was our interview with the filmmakers behind Kuliana. Next up, we talked to the director and filmmakers behind the movie Indie Life of Music, which also won the award for Best Director um, during the Festival Awards in the International Narrative category. In the Life of Music is a story revolving around the Cambodian genocide and told through three generations of a family. And you're listening to the Collabcast. We are here at the... 2018 Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival. I am here with the crew behind Indie Life of Music. We have co-directors Kaylee So and Vizal Sok, as well as producers Nirde Trin and Prachli. Uh, welcome to the show. Um, welcome Thank to the festival. Congratulations Thank you for on having you us. Yeah. It. Um, does anybody want to tell us a little bit about the film? Sure. Um, in the Life of Music is a story about how one Simsi Simut song plays a role in the lives of uh, a family through three different decades in Cambodia, um, pre-war, 1978, uh, during the, the genocide, um, and then post-war. I guess, uh, what drew you to, to making the film? Well, I had watched this documentary called... Um, Cambodia's Lost Rock and Roll Mm -hmm. and in it 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 talked about all these artists and all these songwriters and singers that had made these incredible sounds and music you know prior to the genocide and how the genocide had you know almost completely wiped out all the all of the singer songwriters of of that decade and and it was such a touching film that it planted a seed and and such an interest Mm -hmm. for me like the, the music woke something up in me and 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 when I went to Cambodia for a visit, what came out of that trip was the idea that, hey, I could tell a story in Cambodia um, using the platform of three different stories through three different decades tied together by one song. Um, and of course, the, the, the story and the writing evolved as we were um, writing it. Um, but that was the seed to be able to tell these stories um, with a song. Yeah. Um Growing up, did you did you do your parents talk a lot about the the you know the Khmer Rouge and the, the the genocide and everything? No, not really. I think you know my parents like maybe a lot of um, Cambodian American parents. Um, they they suffered through so much that you know when we grew up in America, there was this silence, this unspoken, um, and they always referred to the the Pol Pot era as you know the the time of Pol Pot, and, and they never really went into explanation about what that meant. And and so growing up, I I didn't realize that that meant that during the genocide, you know, I thought it was something equivalent to like oh during the Renaissance or something like that, you know. Yeah. Um. So they would always refer to that decade as the Pol Pot times. So after you, you watched this documentary, did you ask your parents about it? No. Pr- prior to the documentary, I, ha- you know, I, I run a film festival with Pratch over here. Mm. Um, and prior to that, I, I had already known a lot about the genocide. And of course, you know, I went to college and, <laughs> and, and the, the Internet age came about. And so, we, you know, during my 20s, I started to kind of want to know more about my roots. So I started to do research. Um, so what the documentary did was... Um, make me want to tell a genocide story 
through music. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's been really inspiring to see like filmmakers like yourself and, and others, like authors, writers, who are now wanting to tell stories of Southeast Asia in like the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, when, you know, you know, growing up Asian American, we're, we don't really talk to our parents that much, or we don't talk about, you know, the past. Yeah. But as you grow older, you want to learn more about where you come from. And it's been great to see these stories start to trickle out into media. So we, we have films like your film, we have plays, we have books now that, that um, talk about the refugee experience. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to applaud you for wanting to bring this um, story out because it's it's still a source of trauma for so many people. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. So what what drew you to um, help co-direct the film? Um, I think uh, I think one day a year before we shot we started production on the film. Kenny hit me up and he said, "Hey, I got a project. I want you to maybe help me out with the project." And she told me about the story of in the life of music, the whole concept about the three chapters and stuff, and and, and I said yes, you know, I just want to be part of the project, and 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 because music has a an important role in the film, uh, I, I thought it was, you know, it, I thought it was the right project for me as well because I, I'm also a music producer, so yeah. I do produce a lot of music in Cambodia, and 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 I know. And I know for a fact that music is, is it's a very important element in Cambodian life in general, yeah. in, the, in the life of Cambodian in general. So, yeah, I, 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 I got interested by the project and, and, and I said yes right away. <laughs> so um, tell me about the song that's the center of the film. Uh, well, we, th- there's a lot of Sinsi Samut songs that are really popular. But for me, the one song that I knew growing up uh, above all else was the song called Champa Patambong. Um, I, I knew what the, the melodies were. I, I kind of knew what the lyrics were. But I, I kind of never got really the metaphors or the meaning of the song. But it, it was so nostalgic that like, if you turned it on, everybody knew everybody. Like, who the singer yeah, yeah. I guess, yeah. Everybody Everyone. knew that song. Everybody knew that song. Yeah, yeah well, well since he's Simone, of course, you know, we, we consider him like... The Elvis of Cambodia. Elvis Presley of <laughs> Cambodia. Like he had written so many songs, you know, prior to the genocide, uh, and and so for us, he's like the the <laughs> god of Cambodian music in in a, in a way, and and his music still resonates today. And the younger musicians are are still, you know, often trying to recreate or you yeah, know exactly. kind of be inspired by his sounds, mm. even you know decades later. How would you describe his sounds? Oh. Uh, I guess it's uh, it's he's, he started in the 60s so his music was really inspired by 60s music that was happening all around the world mostly America and France mm-hmm. and, uh, and and of course he has influence from Chinese music and Thai music as well but so it's very eclectic yeah it's very you know? eclectic yeah he Th- did, that, that's that's why he's so universal because yeah. he can yeah. go from like Bossa Nova and, and Cha 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 and go into Cambodian kind of more rhythm and sound and then go to rock and roll and then suddenly yeah. he does some Japanese song and remake of Japanese song or Chinese song so yeah, yeah. Um, personally I, I recently learned about um, like the Cambodian rock scene uh, through watching a play called Cambodian Rock Cambodian Band. Rock yeah we, yeah we got a lot of people out to go see that we were very <laughs> excited we were like oh you know because there's not a lot of uh, Cambodian stage <laughs> theatrical so yeah. we're like it's the first ever you know here in California so we made sure that you know everyone we knew went to see it 
Yeah. Yeah, and, and the music's so fun, but it also is tragic because of what happened and what happened to the yeah. musicians. Yeah, and, right. and I, I guess that's, that's the thing, too. We, we take this one song, and through each decade, we kind of transform its, its meaning mm. um, to the character. Um, and, and you can do that. And, and even today, you know, when we listen to the song, what does it mean for each individual person yeah. to hear this song? So is this the um, world premiere of the film, or have you? Yes, it is. It's actually awesome. the world premiere of the film. It's the first time we'll be showing it to <laughs> such a large audience. So we're, you know, excited and nervous and all all of everything. <laughs> want to talk to your producers if they if they want to talk? Do you want to talk? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, what did you what what did what did you think when you first um, heard about this project when it was first brought to you? Like, what what, what drew you to it? Um. I loved it. I mean, she, it was interesting. So Kaylee came back from Cambodia and had this idea. And at the time, it was just still kind of developing. Um, and, you know, I think she talked a little about how it was you know, originally going to be, we did it in three chapters, three different decades. I loved um, the story. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm on board pretty quickly. <laughs> and so we just kind of developed from there. Yeah. I mean, when you think about stories about this time period, it's always about soldiers and war. Yeah. Um, and it, it's great to see that we're focusing on the families and the people, like the civilians actually affected by, yeah. by the war. Well, one of the uh, one of the things that when we when you know Kaylee was also one of the, one of the writers um, developed the story and um, and I you know as a producer I looked at other different angles um, of the the project the script the story as well and so I also have a background in political science um, I studied a lot of the the genocide and um, as I grew up and was older as well so I. I always kind of narrowed, kept on going back to the political side, <laughs> and so Kayla would always bring the story back and said, "No, we don't want to focus on that, you know, and and keeping it more. There's the love story, there's family, there's other things um, that she wanted to, you know, keep her vision mm-hmm. of." Yeah, I, I wanted the story to be more like a, a love letter or a love song, mm-hmm. you know, to to the families yeah. or you know to the yeah, yeah and. I'm, I'm glad you did because these stories don't have to they don't have to be political to be political yeah, right? yeah, Just that it exists that, that these people are being seen as people their, your characters being seen as people is a political statement in itself right? telling people that this existed we existed these people went through these, these horrific things and came, came out and um, I want to thank you for you know, bringing the story out to the world um, our time is up so we've been talking to the, the producers directors writers behind In the Life of Music it's playing here at the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival uh, thank you so much for talking with us and have a great thank rest you. of the festival yeah you thank too. you for having us it's great talking yeah. next up we talked to Chelsea Wynn Stanley one of the directors behind the film Waru which is an anthology film featuring eight short stories revolving around a single subject all shot by and starring Mari women And we are back on the Collabcast here at the 2018 Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival. I am here with Chelsea Wynn Stanley, uh, one of the directors of the feature film Waru um, here at the festival. Welcome to the show. Kia ora. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So you are of Maori descent mm-hmm. uh, and originally from New Zealand, but you live in L.A. now, which is why you're here representing um, 
your, your woman. <laughs> yeah, I get, all, I get all the USA gigs. I'm lucky. No, yeah, I moved here uh, in May of last year. Well, welcome. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the film? Sure. So, Waru is a film, it's a collaboration of uh, nine Māori women. We were brought together to make eight different stories that were weaved together to create a feature film, and it's based around the death of a child. <laughs> Bob bomb <laughs> You're <Yeah>. like, what? <laughs> um, it's, um, is it a linear narrative or is there a no so so when we um, were brought together by the producers of the project uh, we had like a bit of a workshop situation and all we kind of knew was that it had to be centered around a tangi which is a funeral the funeral of a child and so over the kind of three or four days that we were on this uh, workshop for we created that world and we created the backstory of of what this child kind of Uh, his life and his situation and where he lived and things like that and then we all decided to come together and create eight different perspectives that weaved together because um, this this is a story that kind of offers I guess an insight into a situation that we have in New Zealand which is an unfortunate situation because far too many children die at the hands of our own people that we know you know so we we needed to come together as a group and as a group of women to talk about it and to find the solution it's not just going to be one right there's got to be many ways in which you want to tackle the story so it made sense to have eight different perspectives and so each story is really quite different and they're all kind of weaved together in one particular way. But we were given a set of non-negotiables, which is kind of crazy because, well, actually, it probably made sense. If you're going to work with, like, nine different women, you've got to, like, rein them in somehow, right? So all we knew was that um, each story had to have one lead, strong lead Māori woman character. It had to be told in 10 minutes of time and the same 10 minutes of time in that day so that we're talking about the film, right? Wow. Uh, we had one day to shoot the film, and all, each film had to be told in one shot. So you're essentially watching eight wow. shots. That makes up the feature. That's. It sounds very <laughs> experimental. Yeah. <laughs> um, how did you? How, how did this? project come about like whose brainchild was it how 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 did you all get involved in yeah it? so um the producers are Kerry and Kyle from Brown Sugar Apple Grant is their production company and they uh originally had wanted to I guess you know tackle this issue of of child murder really in mm. New Zealand and so they thought the best way to do that was actually to bring a group of women together to tell that story so they put out a bit of a call and you could apply to be one of the directors. I guess the cool thing about it, they told us that um, when they were first searching for people to be involved and, and put the call out for directors, some people who were kind of funding the project were like, oh, forget about it. You want you want to find what? Eight directors, eight Māori women directors. Good luck. Um, in actual fact, over 50 women applied. Uh-huh. Which is just wonderful, you know, because it means that there are women out there ready to tell stories, and they want to tell stories, and they want to direct. So that was a really kind of cool thing. And, and anyway, I was just lucky to, to be one of those participants, and they brought us together, and we all sat around this table, and it was, an, it was a really healing experience because a lot of these stories that we talk about, and we all named our particular piece after particular women that were in our stories, they all come from truth, 
And whether or not we've experienced those particular things or we know of something about it, it's all based on truth. So we all kind of sat around the table and we shared our stories. We were crying and, oh, it was like therapy, you know. Um, but it was actually a really wonderful production uh, process. Yeah. The production, on the other hand, was really hard. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. There was a lot of just, not restrictions, but the challenge, right, yeah. of, of the... Of the of the vision of the producers. Right? Yes, yes, it was challenging. And, um, you know, just the, the tight turnaround, like from beginning conception to the actual finished film, it was like a few months. Oh. And so also some of us didn't have rehearsals, so you were just flying on the set of your pants. You were just like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> you know, um, some of us had never made a film before, and some had. So there was a real, um, I guess it was a great spectrum of skill sets as well. Some people had come from producing backgrounds. Some people had were actors. Some people were, yeah, it was a really good way to get people together and collaborate like yeah. your collaboration podcast yeah <laughs> well like you said it's, it was also a great way to showcase the talents you know it's, it's actually really clever like getting all these women together to show that this talent exists currently within the even the the, the community yeah. to field 10 um maori um directors each with their own like also showcasing 10 Maori actors and like just and, yeah like a proof of like not just a proof of concept but like a a statement that this talent exists within the world like absolutely yeah. correct yes because we gave we gave uh, eight leading women Maori women an opportunity to you know front a film like own a piece of that film you know and it's wonderful because there is there's that talent there and they often when you when you just when you have a, a, a normal feature narrative for example you've probably got one lead throughout that entire film that you're kind of watching and you're going on that journey with well in this story there's like over eight strong powerful voices yeah. so it's yeah how was it like um, working with other women directors like I, I, I imagine the directing world especially as, as a female is, is quite lonely sometimes you feel like you're the only one out there doing what you're doing um, but to be together with all these other all these other people just doing what you're doing and mm. and was, was that a new experience for you was that yeah a- yeah and I, th- I think it was a wonderful experience in that pre-production process where we all got together because once we had written our pieces we could then, um, you know, share them with each other, get feedback and, and feel like you had your sister's back, you know. <laughs> like you weren't, like you say, it wasn't a lonely thing. And, and, and you're right, with writing, it can be so lonely. But we had an opportunity to bounce off each other. And because we needed things to kind of weave, we had to make sure that they were making sense. Yeah. So, um, of course, you can always look back and go, oh, I wish I had more time and I wish I had this and that and whatnot. But I think what we achieved at the end of the day is quite remarkable given the, the short amount of time, given the like tiny amount of resources and, yeah. and all those types of things and restrictions and whatnot. But yeah. So how, how has this film premiered in New Zealand yet? Yeah, so we, we had our world premiere um, at Toronto International Film Festival mm-hmm. last year. Um, and we had a local New Zealand International Film Festival screening. Uh, it's played at the Palm Springs International Film Festival, Hawaii International Film Festival. It's how's been, how, been how, how has the reception been? Amazing, actually. Yeah, like um, we've had a few standing ovations, um, pe- lots of crying, <laughs> lots of tears. Um, people genuinely wanting to um, 
you know, think about their own community and think about what they can do in their own uh, situation at home, whether it be, and also looking in your own back, backyard, you yeah. know, like how can we be part of the solution? Because it's not just something that is just uh, for New Zealanders only or a New Zealand problem, so to yeah. speak, or a Māori problem. It's a global kind of problem and it's a society problem. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's great to see, you know, the story itself and the subject matter is very specifically New Zealand, mm. but it's it's a universal message, and it, you know you've played so many places that you know and affects so many people that it's another proof of concept that like these stories, the more specific you go, the more universal it gets. Yes, right? that's true. You know, one of the fun, some of the funniest reactions though we've had are from, and I feel like I can say this, but uh, <laughs> white Americans who um <laughs> like they just like oh is it really like that? Or is it really that racist? It's like, oh my God, are you kidding me? You guys live in the, one of the most racist places in the world and you're actually <laughs> asking me that? And so it's, it's kind of quite funny to, and it's good actually to be at those Q&As because then you can turn it around and say, well, look, look at your own backyard, look at your own country. Like, come on, seriously, that's yeah. a silly question because of course you know it is. And it's everywhere. Yeah. And it's... And it's a great thing, you know, what's happening at the moment, this whole Time's Up and, and Me Too and all that kind of stuff. Like, Time's Up for everything. Time's Up for bullshit on everything, yeah. right? Like, racism, you know, sexism, genderism, ism, yeah. ism, ism. Like, <laughs> yeah. no more isms. Yeah. And it's, it's such a great time in entertainment because we're now, like, diversity, not, not only in, in, in actors, but in stories are now becoming more and more valued more mm. than before. And people are are I think hungry for different perspectives different representations on screen yeah and the thing with that is it will change so long as audiences demand it and want it and want to see it like um, you know Searching Last Night that film was great and it had it was a full Asian cast and it, it was brilliant and everyone in that audience was glued to that screen and they loved it and you know they want more. You can tell they want more. And so, yes, we need to change the mindset from the funders and the people that control the money and purse strings. But people, people like Anish and, and the other filmmakers who are doing that good work, they need to keep going, keep going, keep going because that's the only way it'll change. Yeah. And then audiences will be like, I want to see that over that next Marvel rubbish. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> so what are, you, um, what are you up to now in LA? Um... I'm having a ball. I love it here, actually. I feel like it's a place where, it sounds a bit cliche, but, you know, you can reinvent yourself and yeah. you can do stuff. Um, I am about to make a sh- another short film this summer here, which is really cool, and I'm finishing off a documentary back home in New Zealand, so I've got to go back home and quickly do that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I've got my kids here. It's sunny all the time. You can't <laughs> complain. Like, this place is awesome. Yeah. Well, we've been talking to Chelsea Wynn-Stanley, one of, one of the amazing directors of the film Waru. Um, you can check it out at the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival. Where else is it going to be playing? Do you know? So it's playing next Tuesday night, 6.30 at LA Live. Mm-hmm. Please come. Please, please, please come. Um, uh, during And then after that, it's actually playing in Seattle at the end of this month. So I'm going to head up there. Yeah. Get some grunge coffee or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, check it out if you have the chance. Um, thanks so much for talking with us and um, enjoy the rest of your festival. Thank you. I will. Right, thanks.
And finally, our last interview is with the director and producer behind the movie Ulam Main Dish, a movie about the rising profile of Filipino food in the mainstream culinary world. I had a great time talking to the father-daughter team uh, about the film and even got a little bit hungry afterwards. <laughs> so I hope you enjoy this last interview from the LA Asian Pacific Film Festival. And welcome back to the Collabcast. We are here at the 2018 Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival. I am here with the director and producer behind Ulam, Main Dish, um, director Alexandra Cuerdo. Hi. And producer Ray Cuerdo. Hey. Are you two related? Yes. Ray is my dad. Okay. <laughs> Should have asked that before we started recording, but <laughs> welcome to the show. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks you for having us. To be here. You guys have well, the film that I am most looking forward to because it has to do with um, the food. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, tell us a little bit about Ulam. So Ulam is about Filipino food. It's the first and only Filipino food documentary, which is kind of insane. I would think that there would be others before us, but we're the first and only. Uh, and as you know, Filipino food is the hottest cuisine right now. Um, we're seeing it in all these major publications, LA Times, New York Times, Vogue, you name it. Um, Filipinos are everywhere. And so we're, we're really excited to capture this movement uh, towards these really restaurants and chefs crossing over into the mainstream. Yeah. Um, so what, um, what was the inspiration behind doing the film? And did you start before, like, before or during the, this, you know, the current craze? So we started this three years ago. Yeah. Actually, it's been a three-year journey. Oh. <laughs> so um, it started, of course, over dinner. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about um, the idea of doing a Filipino food documentary. And actually, you, right, had had this idea with your college friend. Yeah, we were we'd been, you know, bandying about the idea of doing one, doing a Filipino food documentary. We never got around to it for what whatever reason and so over that dinner we were saying well what are we going to do we haven't really been doing anything about it and then Allie just said I'll do it you know <laughs> and, and that's how it all started because she, you know she just graduated from film at UCLA Film mm -hmm. and uh, this turned out to be her first feature film oh congratulations yeah. thank you <laughs> it's a labor of love <clears throat> and uh, of food I imagine, did you get to sample a lot during we production? We ate everything. <laughs> Ten pounds later. <laughs> <laughs> we ate it all. So everything you see in the film, mm -hmm. we've eaten. So basically, really, you know, the joke is that I got hungry and made a movie. Because <laughs> you know? we were so excited to be able to go to restaurants uh, in New York, in L.A., and really have some of the cutting edge of Filipino cuisine. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about just the fact that it's now a craze. And you know how the food world is. It's all about what's the next big thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Filipino food, for those who know about it, has always been good. Yeah. Yes. But the, the idea of it being good, like, mm -hmm. like, like worthy of being covered, is, yes. is more of a recent thing, right? Yes. Absolutely. And so that's the thing that's so interesting is we're seeing Filipino food cross over into the mainstream in all cities. You know, just for this film alone, we've been really amazed at the response. 
it's been so positive. <laughs> and we've been getting inquiries, actually, about this film from all over the world, um, which is amazing. So, you know, places that we didn't even think there would be Filipinos. Sweden. <laughs> yeah. Right. London. You know, we're, we're really seeing that there are Filipinos um, and people that uh, are friends with Filipinos that are so interested in the cuisine and have such a connection to it. Yeah. And um, that really is something that we learned over the course of the last three years is, you know, what is that connection? Uh, what is your idea of home? You know, and for me, it was Filipino food and food really was the entry point to me reconnecting with my roots as a Filipino American. So what are some of the themes that you touch on in the film? Identity. <laughs> That's a big one. Yeah. Um, Filipino-American identity. Uh, we talk about authenticity. <laughs> what is it to be authentic, right? When um, cooking is such a subjective thing, you know, what your mom makes is not as good as what my mom makes. <laughs> you know, there's that competition. And so, you know, for us, it was a matter of like, okay, what does that mean for each chef? It's not like there are chefs out there trying to be inauthentic, right? right? It's a matter of like, what is this chef's take on Filipino food? What is this other chef's take? <laughs> and, you know, and really what, what I learned, you know, as a filmmaker is that there are many different kinds of authenticity. Authenticity has many different um, flavors, you yeah. know, so to speak. You know, it's really about like what your mom made for you growing up. And so, <laughs> you know, that's different for everybody. And and the Philippines is over 7,000 islands. So, you know, everybody's going to cook adobo differently. Yeah. Right? Right. It's interesting that you talk about authenticity because it's such a a buzzword, mm -hmm. especially within when we're talking about culture mm -hmm. and diaspora yeah. cultures too. Like what is authentic, what isn't. And and that, what is authentic as an Asian American? Yeah, right. right? Which and is different than what's authentic in the motherland. Yeah, and things that are deemed unauthentic are like shunned and shamed, and it's mm -hmm. you know there's there's been a lot of frustration that like food from our cultures that have long been like snooted upon and like mm -hmm. sneered on are now becoming trendy and and right um yeah and really and validated and, yeah but by whom right, <laughs> right. and that, you know that's that's something i've seen a lot in the filipino american community is there is this sense of well hey we're not just trending right yeah. filipino food has always been good so it's a matter of perspective the end of the day right <laughs> is is it worth is filipino food worth your time and your dollar you know <laughs> i think it is <laughs> and this film is about showing the world that uh, it is, that it is. <laughs> yeah. you know filipino food is worth your coverage your love your uh support yeah. you know and uh, and so are filipino people you know <laughs> because that's really right food is such a a way to share um our culture you know with someone who isn't filipino right. you know like it's basically saying this is me on a plate try <laughs> yeah. it yeah. right and if you don't like it i have 20 other dishes for you to try <laughs> right right <laughs> yeah so how did you get um, roped into helping your daughter <laughs> produce a film? <laughs> well, um, obviously, I love Filipino food as well. <laughs> um, I, I will always tell you that my wife's cooking is the best. <laughs> and uh, in the same way that she will tell, tell you that her mom's cooking is the best. Mm. Uh, Absolutely, or, mom, or, if you're listening. Or, or, or her grandma's cooking. 
Uh, oh, wait, wait, mom or grandma? Let's get this on the record. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't even say that. I'll be disowned. I'm like, okay, Lola, Lola's cooking. <laughs> but but um, it, it was the realization when she volunteered to pick up from where we couldn't get started. I realized, yes, I'm gonna go on this ride. Um, of course, uh, the main issue, as she had just mentioned, is all about the the funding of it, mm-hmm. right? And in a way, the three-year journey kind of worked itself out organically because, you know, the money came in fits and spurts. And, of course, the scheduling of the chefs and the shooting of it between L.A. and New York, back and forth, you know, turned out that it sort of just worked itself out. And um, and so th- that was that. That's always the main the main challenge of doing a, an independent documentary film is how how you f- find the money to do it yeah. and the time and the time, now time and resources. <laughs> now, did you have a background in producing films? Or? Um, yes, I've been in the business now for thirty years. Okay, uh, in the film business, and I've done narrative films before this. This is my second documentary. The first one I did was I helped. Um, a, uh, an accomplished filmmaker, Ramona Diaz, do her um, dire- uh, producer film. She directed it as well, called Motherland, mm. um, and that was my first time. Um, yeah, that was at Sundance last year, yes, right? Yeah. Yes, that was my first time. Uh, and it uh, was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award. <laughs> Not to brag. <laughs> and uh, nominated for a Peabody. We 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 went around, um, and you know, props, huge props to Ramona. Uh, with that film, um, but it also was an education for me mm. uh, in the documentary film world. And interestingly enough, it kind of worked itself out too <laughs> because here I am producing yeah. the second documentary film with my daughter. So yeah. you know, it, again, it, things kind of all worked out for <laughs> you know in the in the in in the process. Yeah. yeah. So you're your daughter going into film and directing was actually just following in your footsteps. I actually told her not to do this, <laughs> not 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 to go into film. I remember film. that. And, and maybe it became kind of like uh, uh, reverse psychology. <laughs> the more I, I said, the more I said no, the more she wanted. Well, Alexander, what made you want to get into film in the first place? So I actually started out really loving music. <laughs> I wanted to be a music journalist. I wanted okay. to write for Rolling Stone. Okay. <laughs> and so I was writing all the time. Um, and I went to college. I was directing theater and I was writing. And everybody around me started saying, why don't you apply to film school? You know, you're, you're writing and directing like already. And, you know, I really loved working with actors and I really loved that whole process. And, you know, I've been watching movies my whole life and I've, I watched my dad, you know, do it. Um, and I think partially because my own father is in the film industry, I think that made it a little bit easier for me to be interested in it. I know that um, I've heard from a lot of other young Asian American filmmakers, it's so hard to tell your parents who most of them immigrated here, right? And, yeah. and really wanted their kids to become 
doctor, lawyer, engineer, <laughs> right? And yep. It's kind of a theme, yeah. yeah. Right, exactly. It's, it's more of a stereotype now. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> yeah. But I've, I've heard that, well, you know, from a lot of my friends, too, you know, that were sort of in the arts. Yeah. And, um, and I was really lucky to have that support from my parents. You know, as soon as I got accepted into UCLA for directing, it, it all kind of made sense. You know, I started working in film. I've worked at a lot of studios uh, in Los Angeles and worked on a lot of film sets. Um, PAing, yeah. you know, all the way up to being an assistant director, being a location manager. Um, <laughs> and, you know, really, I've worked Got many hustle. positions yeah. <laughs> on a film set. Uh, and so that that for me made me realize like the reality of working in film you know it's not this big glamorous thing it's <laughs> it's a lot of it's a lot of hustle it's a lot of hard work um and the fact that i still loved it after all of that after eight years of working in film you know it it meant that this was for me yeah and um to do my first film with the support of my family there's nothing better than that that's that sounds like the dream <laughs> And um, the film has premiered um, at the San Francisco International Film Festival. It's, um, I guess you're nearing the end of your festival run, right? Uh, for California. For California. California. Yeah. So okay. we're, uh, we're still in the middle of yeah. it. Okay. <laughs> we're going to go to New York yeah, after we're this. Going, awesome. We're going to hit the East Coast next. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and reception has been well. Um, yes, you so told far. me about your yes. standing ovations. Oh, and, my gosh. You know, it's it, been I mean, crazy. when you're just showcasing yummy food, it's... <laughs> it's <laughs> <laughs> That's half the work, right? <laughs> I mean, I I hope people are hungry after watching the film. Yeah. I'm gonna make sure I eat before coming to watch your film. <laughs> please do, please do. You'll um, still be hungry though. Yeah. After <laughs> uh, there's a jolly bee right down the yeah. street. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess uh, my last question is for Daddy Quirtle. Are You proud of your daughter? Oh, <laughs> is the Pope Catholic? absolutely 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 so the film is Ulam I've been talking to the director and producer um, Alexander Cuerdo and Ray Cuerdo um, of the film Um, it's playing here at the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival it's going to CAMFest next week before heading out east Um, so make sure you check it out make sure you eat beforehand and um, yeah Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you Um, so much. And uh, please follow us on social media at Ulam the Movie uh, on Instagram, Facebook. And uh, also, uh, we'll have all our screening information on our website, www.ulamthemovie.com. Thanks so much. Awesome. And that wraps up our filmmaker interviews from the 2018 Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival and also this episode of the Collabcast. I hope you enjoy listening to all of our filmmakers and I hope you do find some time to go attend your local Asian American Film Festival to check out the great talent that's out there um, making films and representing our stories. We have one more episode covering the premiere of the 2018 HBO APA Visionaries finalists um, during the LA Asian Pacific Film Festival. So keep your eyes peeled. And that'll be the last of our three episodes covering the LA Asian Pacific Film Festival. Um, I do hope that you've enjoyed our coverage. Um, And if you do have some feedback about the past few episodes covering the festival, please shoot us an email at podcast at collaboration.org. 
And if you like what you hear, please subscribe to us if you haven't already. Uh, we you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast, of course, is a part of Collaboration, a nonprofit organization supporting Asian Americans in the arts and entertainment. Discovering, elevating, showcasing, and connecting the creative talents of our Asian American community. Learn more about collaboration by going to our website at www.collaboration.org. The Collabcast is also a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, an amazing collective of Asian American hosted podcasts um, such as this one. If you like what you hear, you should also check out Saturday School. Uh, Saturday School is a pop culture history podcast hosted by film scholars and journalists. Brian Hu and Ada Sang. Their latest episode was a bonus episode featuring Bing Lu, the director of the documentary Mining the Gap, who also won the Best Director Award in the North American Documentary Feature category at the LA Asian Pacific Film Festival. This is in addition to uh, the Breakthrough Award he won at the Sundance Film Festival. So um, it's a great interview with an amazing director. You can find Saturday School the Collabcast, and the other great podcasts of the Potluck Collective by going to the website podcastpotluck.com. Special thanks to Travis Trail for use of his song Calling For You for this episode's music breaks. And special thanks to all the filmmakers who spoke to me during the festival. Uh, my name is Marvin Nguyen, and this has been the Collabcast. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. See, I'm calling for you.